Kia ora and welcome to Circuit Cast. My name is Danny McIntosh and today you're listening to part three of Sites of Connection. In this podcast series, I speak to three artists working at the intersection of filmic language, poetry and metaphor. Our guest today is Hana Pera Aweke. Hana is an artist whose practice combines handheld moving images with poetic text. Their works are personal, historical and often politically charged. Kia ora Hana, welcome to Circuit Cast. Uh, e te tahau toku papa, uh, ko wera iti rawa, ko taupere i nga maringa, uh, ko waikatarawa, ko manga piko na awa, um, ko tainui te waka, ko wahi te, ko me te ohaki na marae, ko nati toku toku rawa, ko nati mahuta na hapu, uh, ko nati hinirangi me tainui. Uh, na iwi uh, e te taha o toku mama ko um, tuhua te maunga, ko pautini uh, te moana, ko te arahura te awa, um, ko uraao um, te waka, um, ko arahura te marae, um, ko uh, katiwaiwai te hapu, um, ko pautini nai tahu. Uh, no reira tēnā koutou ka tēnā koutou katoa. Um, so ko hana tōku ingoa um, no otipoti ahau, uh, ke kauru ahau e noho ana inaene. So kia ora. my name is Hana Pera Aoki. I am from Dunedin and I have whakapapa ties to the Waikato and to the west coast of the South Island. Kia Thank you. I'd like to begin by discussing your 2023 video, I Saw the Mountain Erupt. This work is set in Kawero, um, a town in the Bay of Plenty. And in the work we see kind of shaky handheld video, shots of mountains and the bush, footage of Tuna is slowed down, rewound and repeated. There's kind of more industrial sites, including smokestacks and the local sawmill. The work is silent, but the images are frequently broken up with text drawn from a 2017 essay by Morgan Godfrey. The essay is called I Saw the Mountain Erupt, A Kawero Childhood. Could you tell us about this text and why you chose this text and what it means to you? So Morgan Godfrey is my partner. And so I've read a lot of his writing, and most of his writing is political commentary or kind of academic law jargon. <laughs> so um, he's written a few pieces that are very personal, but this text feels particularly personal. And we, the reason that we live in Kawaro is because this is where this is his Tūranga Waiwai. This is where he's from. So. I think when I initially pitched my film, I wanted to make a film about tuna and kind of this, the life cycle of tuna, because I think it's very interesting that they can like crawl over land and that they go and breed out somewhere in the middle of the, you know, Temuana, Akiwa, no one knows exactly where they breed. So for me, I, I wanted to, you know, like I'm living in this town and the main Part, like a huge part of the, t- this town's history is the Tasman pulp and paper mill. And so 
I guess you can kind of see there's this sort of tension, right, of the way this, that industry provides people with a living and with being able to put bread and butter on the table and feed their families. But at the same time, we have this kind of ecological damage that it's caused to the whenua, that it's caused to the river. And it's kind of an interesting place to live too because it, it was one of the wealthiest towns in the country and now it's one of the poorest. And this is because this industry, it was finite. It was never going to last forever. And, you know, this it's gone through some sales recently, so it's no longer owned by the Fletcher family. But I guess I have this interest in industry and the kind of long-term effects of neoliberalism, I guess because someone my age in their 30s, we kind of, you know, we were just at the precipice before the big Ruth Richardson mother of all budgets in 1991, where they just like gutted state-owned assets and made poor people more poor. (laughs) And you can really see the effects of that in places like this and like places like down in Dunedin, which was also like a place that was like one of the wealthiest in in the country and was a site of industry. And was also a Fletcher town. You know, I'm really interested in the Fletcher family. I work for a museum named after the Fletchers. So it's kind of, you know, they built a lot of this infrastructure within New Zealand all over the Mutu. But then I guess that wealth wasn't exactly redistributed. And for me, I was really interested in the kind of pūrako of this place and the kind of Māori history of this place. Because Māori have lived here for over a thousand years. You know, it's a very densely populated area. You know, down the road we have, you know, Ngāti Pikau and Tarawa, and then we have like Natiawa and Whakatuhia, and then you go down the coast to like Ngāti Paro. But in this area here where our, like the iwi that holds Ahika here is Tūwharito Ki Kawaro. So they've lived here with their ancestors for a thousand years. So this town was built to accommodate this mill but that's not the only history that exists here. And so I was kind of interested in teasing that out and also thinking through kind of Morgan's Morgan's history and his Farno's history here. Yeah, which I find really interesting. Yeah. I guess it's sort of articulated in that essay. Because the text kind of existed before the moving the moving image work. Why did you decide to kind of entwine the writing with these images now this year? I guess before I kind of got together with Morgan, <laughs> I was pretty familiar with his writing and we were kind of friendly. And I had read that text years ago and it had really stayed with me. And then I when we moved back, when we moved here, I reread it and I kept going over it and over it and and wanting to know like little more details about like what house he grew up in and you know like where he used to go for walks as a child you know it made me kind of just I guess it was so deeply personal and so speaks to his personal kind of whānau history which I think yeah is a story that is not you know, like I think in the story talks about his mother was was a teenager when she had his sister and his father used to be in the mongrel mob, you know. And so it's this like kind of stereotyping of Māori that and I think a lot of people think of that like that about like a place called Kawado, you know. Like I remember when I first moved here my dad was like, 
are you sure you want to move there? There's a lot of mobsters there. And, you know, <laughs> I don't worry about that at all. Like, I, <laughs> those people are integrated within the community. But if you didn't live here and you just saw only the negative parts of this place, then you wouldn't know that it's actually, there's a lot more to this place than like meets the eye. And there's a lot more histories. There's other histories here that are like embedded within to the whenua that are, you know, passed down through Toparapara and through Waiata and, you know, like all these other kind of histories that I'm interested in. Mm. And I guess, yeah. And I guess just revisiting that text because it felt like I, I felt like I should because I was living here and I wanted to better understand this place that was so meaningful to my partner and, you know, as my daughter's whenua as well. So, yeah. Let's talk about your 2019 work, A Eulogy to Love. This film is set mostly in landscapes of Aotearoa and there's occasional kind of brief shots of Italian actress Monica Vitti. Why did you decide to juxtapose Monica Vitti against these shots of domestic animals in the rural landscape? Yeah, so I filmed this, made this film while I was living in Lisbon in Portugal. And so some of the footage is from Aotearoa and from places like it's a film, but parts of it are like my one of my awa, so the Waikato River. But then there's also like other footage that I'd shot in places like Italy, France, maybe London, like a few places where I just saw parts of what looked like home. And it was kind of this like homesickness, I think, that I was sort of feeling. And in terms of the footage of Monica Vitti, that was a film that I watched. So when I was in Lisbon, I had an abortion. And it was the right decision for me to make and everything, but it yeah it really fucked me up. <laughs> and I watched I watched a film by the great Italian director Michelangelo Antonini Antonini. <laughs> I hopefully I'm just butchering that Italian <laughs> name, but yeah. So he's one of my favorite directors, and so he yeah he filmed this is as this film's called Red Desert. And it was his first, I think it was 1964, and it's his first film in colour. And so it follows the story of this woman named Juliana, who is like just had like a month-long stay in hospital after having a suicide attempt. And so she has her husband's kind of a deadbeat, and he's like an engineer at this kind of petroleum factory. So she has an affair... And it doesn't help her if it just her state of mind just deteriorates over throughout the course of the film. And it's really heightened by the sound design and by this kind of post-apocalyptic, like industrial shots. But I was really struck by all these images of her as like she looks almost like catatonic, like this there's something, there's this like blank kind of dread over her face the whole throughout the whole film. And for me, I was thinking about this in terms of like how I was feeling after my what happened to me. But I was also thinking about again this I, this tension of of industry versus like caring for the funeral, caring for the landscape, and this kind of existential dread that we have of like 
you the things like factories and and you know coursing through a landscape. So yeah, I guess I was really struck by that film, and I kind of wanted to. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I was sort of frustrated with that film because it's an it's a beautiful film, and it's kind of but it's kind of like a sci-fi horror. I think I described it as before as like a spaghetti western, but like a sci-fi without any like you know like any kind of space element. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the 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 other character is kind of like this like orange smog. Like chemical smog is like mm. the colors, and you know, it, it's it's a very rich kind of dark film. Mm. But yeah, I guess I was thinking about you know those tensions of industry, but also just wanting to be like you know this woman is, it's just her going crazy, and it and, and there's no real like explanation as to like why, and it was sort of this me feeling annoyed that there was this kind of hysterical woman or something. And yeah, I guess I wanted to use that image of her as like a, you know, yes, I might be going crazy, but you know, I'm there's a reason, and but I won't let it kind of defeat me, or <laughs> something. Mm. Yeah, I guess I was very homesick and was kind of reflecting on failed relationships, and yeah, I was reflecting on a lot of things, and I was I was quite depressed. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, I like love that film. I love Italian cinema. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's something melancholic about the work. Yet I find deeply there's something deeply hopeful as well. And with that imagery, there's your poetry kind of intertwined as well. And the last line is, "I will not be afraid." despite the fear tumbling through my body. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that line and what you were feeling. Yeah, I guess I was, when I was writing, I wrote this piece of writing over a period of time. So I am also a writer and, and do write poetry sometimes. But I think, yeah, this was sort of a cathartic piece of writing and then the film kind of, I kind of decided that it needed kind of images or image to go alongside it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I had been thinking a lot about the way that we do things. We make decisions and we don't always know what the outcome is going to be. We don't really know how things are going to affect us. But you can't live your life afraid. You have to kind of make decisions and stick by them and, you know, make decisions about you know for instance like if you choose to fall in love you know that's making a decision to 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 do that even if it's scary well like me i moved to the other side of the world i moved to portugal and i couldn't speak portuguese <laughs> <laughs> so it's just this idea that you know even if you're afraid you should still i guess it's like feels really corny to say you should do what you're what makes you if something makes you fearful, you should still do it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Do what makes you afraid. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> sounds like a live, laugh, love kind yeah. of well, wait. life. No, it's true. It's true though, eh? <laughs> yeah. 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 Hey. It's a kind of cliche, but I love cliches. So <laughs> mm. it come, It's like really powerful in this work. I guess because of the juxtaposition between the melancholy and the hope. So mm. it works really well. 
the last work I wanted to discuss today is Te Tamaiti Te Ao. And here we find a few new themes emerging in your practice. The work begins with images of Papatuanuku, the beach, seaweed, sand, moana, high up cliffs and like rock formations. And juxtaposed with this is the imagery of a, a Pepe's uh, legs happily kicking in the bathtub. I wondered if you could talk a bit about how parenthood has affected your work. It's affected my work in different ways. For instance, I've probably moved more towards making f- like video and film mm-hmm. works because it's a more slower process and I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> my baby takes up all my time. But no, my, my, when my daughter was born, it was kind of this, I mean, it's, it's very weird to be preg- like to be hapu and to give birth. Like it's a very weird experience. <laughs> like it truly is because <laughs> your body goes through all of these changes, but you also you psychologically you you change. There's all these chemicals that are running through your your body. But it's also like a you know I think I said before like you're a baby when you have a baby it's an amalgamation of every person you've ever loved. Mm-hmm. So there'll be little points where I look at her and I'm like, you know, she's got my grandfather's big ears, <laughs> but you know, she's got like a scowl like I used to do, or, you know, she's got my, you know, she's got Morgan's eyelashes, you know, just all these little parts that make up this little person, like a part of both of our whakapapa, you know, and these, I guess, when I was making this film, I was thinking about deep time and that was, I took our family on a road trip around all my favorite rock sites in the South Island. <laughs> so it was a rock tour. <laughs> and, you know, the South Island is so old in terms of that idea of deep time. So deep time is a term that geologists use to describe kind of yeah, I guess this like ancient sense of time that's like almost kind of really hard to comprehend how like old some of these structures are. And like in particular, thinking about like limestone. And, but also um, I've always been really interested in my kind of research and in my kind of writing in this like idea of like the human and the non human, but from a very Maori perspective. So we're this idea of like, yeah, Kamua, Kamuri, so moving backwards into the future with my eyes fixed on the past or this idea of like time being non-linear and I, are you really f- I really feel that with some of these sites, especially like Elephant Rocks, the Moiraki boulders, you know, these places, the clay cliffs, you know, this, the limestone is, you know, thousands and thousands of years old. It used to be aquatic, you know, it used to be in water, but it's also like li- part of limestone also, also makes makes up our bones. But we're used to like, I guess I was considering too, like life in general and the building blocks of life and the beginnings of life. You know, we used to be limestone. <laughs> we used to be the lichen that was on limestone. And then we became like these kind of mammal creatures and then we came out of the water and then slowly morphed into being human beings but I was also thinking about how like you know I think 80% of our body's water when we when we're 
when we come into this world, it's like in water, we're grown in water. And also this idea, you know, like for people who are able with bodies able to carry children, they have like an egg inside of them. And so this egg, you know, when you, when it's inside you from like the moment that you're in the womb, you know, like, and just all these ideas were like kind of, I think it was me kind of sort of comprehending being a parent. And also, like, I think around the same time, I, wa- I rewatched Eraserhead, the film by David Lynch. I don't know if you've seen it, but like, <laughs> he talked to, he, there's this interview where he talks about how he, like, and it's kind of like this silly horror film with like this baby where he's like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of the similar thing of like this kind of like, it's, it's, it takes a lot to kind of, I mean, I don't think I was necessarily like, you know, some people are like born to be parents or a natural parent. I don't think I was like, I'd ever thought about being a parent before. And then all of a sudden I was responsible for this, for this little person. And, you know, and it's just like the most intense love that you can ever feel. And so I was thinking about all of these things while I was making that film, how much I love my daughter, but also how, she, we're both just like little lines on this huge papa that expands past our comprehension as as human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 uh, yes, Kilda. Throughout the film, there are moments of poetry and, and prose as well, alluding to Haputanga parenthood and Papatua Nuku. And some of this, I understand, is your own writing, and and some of the some of the writing is Kerry Humes. Could you talk about what kind of attracted you to the writing of Kerry, the late Kerry Hume? So another thing for that film is that it was it's all filmed on sites that are kind of sacred to Kaitahu and mm. we were I was living and working on that Finua for a long time and have f- f- some fuckabapa connections to it as well and Kitty Hume is from Kaitahu and I think she passed away I think it was 2020 or 2021 maybe but I had been revisiting her work and so I was reading a couple of, I was reading her book Strands and another, oh, her book about, her book of poetry around the Moiraki, around Moiraki, the Moiraki conversations, I believe it's called. And so I was like really reading her, rereading her work because I think the way that she describes the landscape in the South Island is, is so insightful and considered and really beautiful and really funny in times and yeah I've just always been kind of drawn to her work but yeah I think since she passed away I've been going back to it a lot more and yeah I think yeah I think around a few like last year I was so Morgan and I work in do a have a project called K2 Pie Press and we worked with Shannon Tao on an exhibition to be part of an exhibition called Mataro and we made this newspaper and we got to in republish heaps of writing by Māori writers and one of them that I was very keen on including was Kiri Hume and so it was yeah it was it was really we would 
having emails backwards and forwards with her sister. And so, yeah, it just felt like wonderful to know that her family really wants to celebrate her and really wants mm-hmm. to celebrate her work like her state does. So it's lucky to be able to use some of her words, but also kind of rewrite them, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was drawn to her work because I lived in the South Island and we have similar Whakapapa connections, I guess. And I wanted to read her because she passed away. So, yeah. Cool. Only, yeah, I think only Māori, only Māori writer to ever win the Booker Prize. So, yeah. The Bone People. Great mm. book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Something different about this work that I haven't seen in some of your earlier works is the soundscape. And we hear kind of two very drone-like songs from Ruby Solly. Why did you include sound in this work? And what was it about Ruby's work that made you want to work with them? So Ruby's also from Kaitahu. So (laughs) that was another reason for wanting Mm -hmm. to kind of align. Like it felt like... It needed, like, these landscapes, they needed to sing and they needed to, if that makes sense. Mm. And I felt like I've always been a real big fan of her, the music that she makes, her her writing, her, yeah, I'm just a big fan of Ruby Solly in general and she's great. <laughs> and we're also, you know, she's my whanaunga as well. So I wanted to, I just asked her if I could use some of her work in this and then, I included it because I just felt like it It really spoke to the landscape mm-hmm. in a way that I felt was like very, yeah, like quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 The the opening of that film with that song and you see the, the like Moana rushing through the seaweed. It's like very powerful, that connection between those two kind of elements. So that's filmed at a place known as Shag Point, which mm-hmm. is where the Arautauru um, waka, so one of the major waka, kaitahu waka, like, was stranded. And you can sort of see the kind of bones of that. Like, uh, there's all these, like, big jagged rocks mm-hmm. along that coastline. And so this, yeah, I think because the film's layered in all these like histories of like kaitahu, it felt really important to include other kaitahu artists, yeah, to be able to kind of tell that story and yeah. That's all my questions. So, Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been so wonderful to hear you talk about your works and your practice. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for asking really thoughtful questions that were, you know, I think helpful for me to think through as well. So thank you. Oh, kia ora. Yeah. You've been listening to Circuit Cast. Kia ora. Mm-hmm.